0: Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Neil Kiernan. He's the host of V Radio and an activist going back to the Occupy Wall Street movement. His audience is made up of people from both the right and the left. He would describe his political leanings as a left-leaning independent who voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020. So first off, and I've, I've been on your show and I've listened to your show, and first off, thank you for your work in the world, and second, thank you for being on the program. Thank you for having me. So... Tell us a little bit about your history and then and then let's talk about what has gone wrong with the left. And I want to say one more thing, uh, which is that there are so many of us old school lefties who now feel somewhat politically homeless because we feel like the left has changed fundamentally. And um, so can you can you talk about your history and then talk about some of the things you think may have gone wrong with the left?
1: let me let me make one point so just so that i don't forget it and then i'll launch into my history um i think like i have a meme that i pass around frequently on twitter and the meme shows the modern left's political compass and it's based off the you know the political compass test that has like four quadrants that are left and right and authoritarian versus libertarian and the point of the joke is that the modern left's political compass Shows that only the top left corner, which is a little green box is actually the left and everything else is far right. Our ability even to define what is left now is completely thrown like into the air. Like we don't really have a good definition for it. And it's become kind of dogmatic to the point that it reminds me more of a religion in that there's no nuance allowed. Like I am very left leaning on the majority of you know, like, issues, but I get identified as far right all the time. Um, and there are other people like Brett Weinstein, uh, you know, like for example, who are definitely left on everything that would have been important before. Um, but now all of a sudden, you know, unless you tick all the boxes, it's like, it's become a religion. And I don't say that to be hyperbolic. I say it because religions have blasphemy, religions have heresy. And if you commit those things, then it doesn't matter how pious you are in any other aspect you are now in league with the devil. You are no longer the Christian or the whatever, right? Um, but anyway, so as far as my background, um, I actually have been through like a wide spectrum of beliefs over the course of my life as far as like just exploring ideas and really trying to get to the bottom of it. My mom was very big on um, it just encouraging critical thinking. And so we, from a young age, you know, she was kind of a parent who liked to talk things out with people, And, you know, including her kids to try to get me to understand, you know, right or wrong, not just because it's a question of whether or not I'm being punished by my mom, but about this is why right or wrong makes sense. And so I'd say that in 2008, my first exposure to any kind of political stuff to the point where I was serious about it would have been Ron Paul, ironically, um, having an argument with. Rudy Giuliani on the topic of why we were attacked on 9-11. And what he said was kind of mind-blowing to me because he just kind of said the quiet part out loud. It's like, you know, they're not attacking us because of our freedoms. They're attacking us because of our foreign policy decisions, and this is blowback. And everybody was aghast at the idea that he even said that out loud, but, you know, it made a lot more sense to me. But anyway, as I kind of, that was what got me to poke my head in the door. Um, That's also kind of around the same time period that I discovered your work you know, a much older video of you, it was called Endgame. um, And I quote it all the time, you know, and a bunch of other things that happened to me at that time, as far as like getting exposed to different thinking, different ideas, and also just kind of trying to become more cognizant of and aware of what was going on around me. From a young age, I kind of had an, I would call it, I guess the best way to explain it quickly would be to say, I remember one day I was in middle school and my counselor saw me and, you know, he thought I was depressed. So he wanted to talk to me and I said, okay, sure. And then he brings me into his office and he asks what's bothering me. And I gave him this like in-depth analysis of what was like the sociological breakdown of the school system and the hierarchies of the popular kids and the unpopular kids. And, you know, he was like, where did you study sociology? And I was like, what's sociology? Like, I didn't even realize there was such a thing as just, you know, a science dedicated to studying scientific, you know, patterns in people's behavior But but that that's how I always see the world. I'm constantly, you know, seeing the world in those ways. And it seems my kids have inherited that same thing. A lot of people don't look at those kinds of dynamics. So coming back to how this leads to me moving in the direction of the left was I came to work for Senator Mike Gravel. Um, He was a Vietnam era senator, very anti-war. And he had a big influence on me, particularly, you know, during his campaign. I worked for his presidential campaign. In addition to that, I've joined the Occupy Wall Street movement, more specifically the camps at Detroit and Flint. It's funny is that the way Occupy was initially was what I would say I wish the left could recapture because I almost feel homesick for it. It was a perfect, at least initially, a perfect melting pot of just so many different kinds of people were there and our races and genders and who we were sleeping with none of that was even relevant nobody was talking about that we were one unified tribe and i think that to me it was so powerful that was one of the things that really drew me in and i you know i had always been poor um i mean i guess the term that would generally be used is yes i would be called white trash i was really really poor like we didn't even own a car um we grew up in really tough neighborhoods so obviously That was going to change my perception of things, particularly when it came to the relationship between the poor and the wealthy, you know, and obviously I I loved the forest, so I became somewhat of an environmentalist at that point. You know, um, those things all kind of played a big role in it. I think that that's actually probably a good way to segue out of that into what I feel is going on now. Um, I pulled myself out of politics after being a big podcaster for many years took a break because my kids wanted to get involved in sports. And one of the things my father was not very good at was being supportive in that regard. And I said, I wasn't going to be that parent. So when they said they wanted to be very serious athletes, I decided to become a very serious parent of an athlete. And so I took a bit of a break. And I think that one of the first things that kind of got me to come back was Bernie Sanders, because then once again, I had a politician Saying things that I was kind of shocked. Healthcare system, and you know, and he was anti-war. At least he was then. I don't. It's like I have kind of lost track of where he's at at this point. And it was really interesting to hear somebody who seemed so sincere, you know, and making those comments that really appealed to people, you know. And at that point, the recession had happened, like a little bit before that, you know. So. Then it may be a bit more mindful again, but it was kind of invigorating to hear from somebody that I thought, OK, I could actually be excited about going to vote again. And so I started looking into his campaign. And one of the other things that poked my interest was the Kyle Rittenhouse incident happened. Um, and I, that's one of the things that I think really started to make me go, well, wait a minute, we're not thinking clearly anymore. I was like, watch the videos guys like yeah i don't agree with the kids political leanings you know probably wasn't wise that he was there but the stuff that was being said about him at the time was just it was just fictional it wasn't true and there were people who were very enthusiastically doing that and that's when i started to notice that the truth was kind of secondary but i guess let let me rewind a little bit i gotta go back to occupy for a moment because this is important too we we went from the unified 99 percent to becoming a group of bickering individuals who essentially what happened, and I can almost remember it the days, actually, like clearly. But at one point, Congressman Ron Paulo had a big influence on the Tea Party movement, which was like the conservative, I guess, other side of the coin for Occupy. said, hey, you know, Tea Party guys, you should probably talk to Occupy because you have some common opponents in the form of the big banks and stuff like that. And I I was pretty excited about that. I thought that would be pretty cool. But shortly around that same time was when all of these experts, and I put that in quotes, showed up to explain to all of us why we couldn't be the 99 percent because we should all kind of secretly hate each other. Like, that's not how they put it, of course. But we were divided up by, well, if you're this race or that race, you should feel this way. If. You know, if there's people of alternative lifestyles here, well, they're being marginalized. And then it started to become a situation where everybody got divided up by these different aspects of who they were that would have been irrelevant literally a week before. Nobody would have been thinking to themselves how many black people were present at a meeting. Nobody would have been thinking to themselves how much time the white people had been speaking You know, and it's not to say that those things are not relevant sometimes. It's just it went from being something that maybe we should consider every now and then to being the focus of everything. And I think one of the you know, it was all said to be done in the name of equality. But then we had with what they called the progressive stack where they wanted us to assign a priority to who was going to speak based upon their perceived levels of oppression. And that ended up just creating a new hierarchy and One of the things that I have since come to realize later on, I think I'm going to remember the the name of the scientist, but she, I don't know if she was a scientist, she's more of an activist, but she had done this historical experiment on a group of children where she divided them up by the superficial point about their eye color. Well, green, you know, blue eyed people are this and blue eyed people are that. And she managed to recreate essentially a racist, bigoted response in that small group of children in a very short period of time. And it was an important study on how racism works. I look at it now and I think back on it. And I actually did a video specifically about it going over all the science by doing that. That's essentially what we're doing now. We spend a lot of time now going into groups as left leaning people where we go, well, you know, you're this group. You have you know, you have green eyes. This is your issue. These are you know, these are these are the people you're oppressing. And then the brown eyed people have. And it just. What science shows is that inevitably this creates bigotry because it activates a lot of these primitive tribal instincts that exist in humans that one of the things a friend of mine named Jacques Fresco pointed out, he lived about 100 years old, he was a good thinker, but he's like, one of the problems of mankind is to be, I would say, arrogant enough to assume that we are not in any way subject to those kinds of primitive instincts. And what I found studying the science was that it's like there's a button you can push in someone's head that activates if you start attacking their in-group. And then it becomes about, well, now there's two tribes fighting each other. And that's what happened in Occupy. We went from a unified tribe to now we're, well, this is the black group. This is the gay group. This is the trans group. This is, you know, like, and it it didn't do anything to make us better and worse. And I think... um. You know, cap it off with a difference of an example would be that Occupy Flint, for whatever reason, did not have this element. There were no people showing up to wokeify, I guess, the, you know, the camp. And so the culture there was radically different, even though it was equally diverse. There were just as many people of different colors and races and creeds and, you know, sexual orientations at Flint. But for whatever reason, we didn't get any of these, quote unquote, college experts to do teach ins to explain to all of us why we were supposed to hate each other. And so not only was Occupy Flint more peaceful, it also was way more productive. We had like solar power. We it was very easy to get people to do the things we needed done in the camp, you know. And looking back on it now, uh, both like Crystal Ball and Ryan Grimm have done stories about how this problem has essentially continued like a virus and is still a problem for leftist leaning groups all over the place. Like the Sunrise Movement is tearing itself apart because essentially what happens when you create a religious Inquisition like mindset is that you're never done. You know, if you run out of witches, it just means you're not looking hard enough. And I hope that that kind of explains where I think I would start when trying to explain this is that, you know, the left and you know, Glenn Greenwald was actually recently talking to Jordan Peterson about this. It's like the left used to be about all of these class issues, you know, about, you know, healthcare care and, and taking care of poor people. And now the most important thing seems to be to figure out what everybody's individual identity is you know and who they're being oppressed by at any given moment so there's no room for unity
0: thank you for that i think a lot about i mean it's pretty interesting i know that he's highly conservative and a lot of lefties hate him but matt walsh had a line that i happened to see about how uh once you give up on uh wealth inequality then really all you have left are, are these issues of personal purity and the thing that I find horrifying is that it was a right winger saying that. And right. that should be it's, – it's not just him. I, there are a lot of old school lefties who say that as well. But it it's a pretty basic thing. And I don't – once you – I feel like in many ways the left has the, – the, the, the left that you're talking about or that we're both trying to talk about what's wrong with it is that – I feel like they got demoralized because, uh, wealth inequality was just getting worse and worse. All the things that we really fought for, the environment's getting worse and worse. You know, we used to fight for community autonomy and that's, you know, getting worse and worse. You can't, I mean, this is, this is old stuff, but you know, the, the commerce clause of the constitution makes it so if a small community wants to keep big box stores out, they can't. They legally can't under the Constitution. If they want to keep factory hog farms out, they can't be under the Constitution because that's interstate commerce, which is only regulated by the feds. The the point is that I feel like part of it was demoralization. If I can't actually stop the murder of the planet, at least I can get this comedian canceled. At least I can, <laughs> right? You know, yell at yell at the person next to me. So just stop me anytime you want. And just just. So sure. whatever well, I on. would
1: I would add to that um something I think you and I have talked about in the past. I would go back to a John Cleese clip uh, clip called John Cleese versus extremism. And what he's pointing out is is it's not just the left. It, both sides are doing this. I would just say that you and I are a bit more responsible trying to hopefully fix our own camp, so to speak, is that there's a rage addiction. Like I, I realized that the left stopped being about being interested in actually convincing people like that was no longer a priority anymore. In fact, I had a black lives matter activist. Tell me once I don't want to convince people. I want people to be afraid to be racist. And I was like, well, you don't understand the psychology of racism. That's actually where it starts is being afraid, but they don't care about being effective anymore. That's not important anymore. They want to do things that make them feel self-righteous, like they're sticking it to the man. And that becomes more important then actually changing anything and it also becomes it makes things that would be detrimental to our goals just secondary to me getting my next fix of doing something to some conservative evil person somewhere that's why we end up with things that are counterproductive like the violent activism or the the endless targeting of white straight you know like there's a a hated group now and you know like none of that is actually going to help us achieve any of our goals, and they just don't care. They're just willing to do it to, to get their like malicious fix. So go ahead.
0: I was not begging to dive in. If you want to keep going, you can. I do have a comment, but I can wait.
1: No, no, go go right ahead.
0: I think a lot about an interview I did uh, back in, I think either I think it was late 90s, with this guy Joel Dyer, who wrote a book called Harvest of Rage. And it was about how the farm crisis of the 80s and 90s, which of course continues in its own way and keeps getting worse, um, that uh, except now we just accept it that you know this this food conglomeration, this monopolization of food systems. Anyway, the the a lot of those farmers, he was he was a he was a hippie basically at the point, and he would ride into town uh, with his hair down to his behind on his motorcycle with a earring in his ear, and The farmers didn't care. As as long as he wanted to talk about the farm crisis, they're like, come on and have a cup of coffee and let's talk. What he wanted to know is why so many of them were ending up with the far right. Why so many of them were ending up in, you know, far right militias. He said it's because if you're really desperate and you're in just really bad shape and your family is gone and you're losing the land that you had since your grandparents, if somebody knocks on your door, and puts her arm around your shoulder and says, "Hey, buddy, it's okay. We'll we'll take care of you." If that person's a Mormon, you're going to become a Mormon. And if that person is a far right militia, you're going to be far right militia. If that person's a lefty, you're going to become a lefty. But the lefty wouldn't reach out to them. The lefts wouldn't reach out to them. Right. And I think I've, I've thought about that so much in the time since that. I, mean, I guess another direction to take this is that I listened to some of the talks that Timothy McVeigh did, and Timothy McVeigh obviously is horrible, absolutely horrible, and he he committed unpardonable things. And some of his anti-war talk was just straight old-school leftism. And I guess one more thing I want to say is Michael Moore used to talk a long time ago about how the Michigan militia were the unemployed arm of the UAW. Yeah. The point I'm getting at is that there are these real issues that we can – I guess this just comes back to the, to the original question of how do, you know, what happened to the left? These used to be issues, you know, these, these class issues used to be really important and environmental issues used to be really important. And, okay, I'm done.
1: No, no, no. Um, I think that, to be honest with you, having witnessed it firsthand, and, again, being somebody who is always kind of thinking sociologically, even before I knew what that meant, what happened at Occupy did not feel organic at all it felt like we were targeted. It felt like somebody essentially had kind of crafted a sociological bomb to throw at us and make us ineffective. And it worked and it's still working. And that's why I describe it almost like a virus because it, it just keeps infecting all leftist groups. And then we spend enormous amounts of our energy trying to fight against perceived bigotry within our own ranks. And that becomes more important and finding the, you know, again, the witches becomes more important and all consuming than literally anything else. And then it's also a never ending purity contest, which is, you know, that's why you'll see people who seem to have nothing better to do with their time than to go through 10 years of somebody's Twitter feed to try to find something that they need to be canceled about. I remember, for example, recently there was an anti-war rally and that used to just be kind of a no brainer. This is what we do. Um, and Chris Hedges, who's a total socialist, was there, but there were people on the left that were furious that he would dare share the stage with anybody that they didn't approve of. Anybody that didn't, you know, again, you know, it's like that's, you know, like compared to a religion, there's excommunication. You're not supposed to talk to those people. It, and like, that's how you end up with people like Brett Weinstein dares to talk to a conservative. He must be far right. You know, it's the same thing across the board. And then, that's why what glenn greenwald was trying to point out was like when was the last time you heard anybody in the lab talk about like wealth inequality it doesn't it seems to be so much less important than pronouns or um kids or like you know what sports somebody can participate in based upon their biological gender these are things that you know honestly take up a, a very small percentage of the population and yet they're now like our major focuses. And a lot of these things, this is something else Jacques Fresco would have pointed out, is that if you solve a lot of the economic inequality issues, those a lot of those problems tend to go away. Like they're kind of symptoms. They're not the underlying causes. I mean, like when you think about it, like I remember when I was teaching my kids about racism, I showed them gangs of New York because that was all mostly people of the same color fighting over the limited resources in early, you know, like in the early United States. You know, and that resulted in English people hating Irish people and then Irish people hating Italian people. You know, um, if you can solve all of those problems, much of this goes away. And then I also remember a video called Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff, which was made by the Socialist Party in the UK. And they pointed out, you know, like they kind of create like a parable about this guy named Rex. And Rex is your super wealthy guy. And he wanted to keep everybody each other so that he can maintain his control of all the toys in the kindergarten. It's like a story told about a kindergartner who's given all the rights to the toys. The point is, is that one of the strategies was to tell all the, you know, the black people to hate the white people and to tell all the men to take, you know, one of the women as their property, you know, and if she doesn't like it, you know, like basically the point is, is that all of these things that we have now seem to be addressing as if we fix that and then suddenly everything is fine is now the forefront and it it just sometimes for example with the racial stuff it's so out of control you know that uh, i noticed is one of the big things it's like we went from talking about class quite a bit to being only talking about race and systemic racism and it's like we could phanos snap every white person off the face of the planet tomorrow that all of these problems would still be there and and they don't seem to get it or or want to get it so that puts us in a situation where we're forever treating our symptoms, but the disease is just going on and on, you know, and it doesn't slow down. So I guess to answer your question, though, it just I don't think it's an accident at all. I honestly feel some kind of social engineering is, is at place, especially when I dug into the science. And that's one of the reasons that this bothers me the most is that the psychology and sociology stuff I read. In fact, I interviewed a sociologist who's a longtime old school 60s leftist who said sociology has been completely captured. He's like, it's not a science anymore. And this is a lifelong sociologist. He's like, and he was so blackpilled about it. He was like, he was so depressed because his science was destroyed by people whose activism was more important to them than actually doing any kind of solid science. But the point is, is that most of this seems to come out of our college campuses where there are a lot of people who kind of push this into the the conversation and the culture of the college campuses and the thing is is that it's the psychology and the sociology departments that know because all of the studies that i have read that determine this is how you create more bigotry and hatred and this is how you fight it all of the competent people know that you have to disarm bigotry like a bomb you you can't just you know it's like when i interviewed daryl davis the black man who gets guys to leave the ku klux klan He said, you know, I I asked him, I'm like, well, for example, what if we took a Black Lives Matter group to a Klan rally? He's like, that could never work. And I was like, why? He's like, because you can't get these people to abandon their beliefs by getting up in their faces and shouting slogans at them or telling them that they're evil and that they're oppressors. And, you know, and he also just identified that you have to understand how a Klan member becomes a Klan member and then try to convince them that that's not right anymore. You do it by humanizing yourself to them as a black person. And then eventually they just abandon racism. They just don't because then they don't think of you as other anymore. Whereas now we go into every situation looking to other everybody there. Like it's a hyper focus. Like I just did a video recently um, about an article I stumbled across where this guy is describing his problems with gentrification. And, you know, he's a black gentleman and he's gay. And he's just describing his situation with being upset that there were so many white people in his community and when he describes his day-to-day existence, he just goes into every situation evaluating the race of literally everybody there and then determining how he's going to interact with the circumstance based entirely upon that. Like, And that is something that you would have identified as being a racist activity. That's something that a racist would do. But we've told that group of people that they can't be racist somehow so they just do it anyway. And then, well, what does that foster in return? Well, as the science has known for many years, that if you constantly attack a group, they're going to be, well, what about your group? What about, you know, what about your race? What about your, you know, and then it just self-perpetuates itself. If that's how you're trying to fight racism, you might as well pour gasoline on a fire to put it out. It's not just a matter of it's immoral. It doesn't work. And so my final point about that is that the sociology and psychology departments, you know, along with some of the other, you know, um, studies that you see on college campuses at this point should have been the source of knowing this is why Martin Luther King did what he did, because what he did works. What what we're doing now doesn't work. You know, um, they should know that already. That research is all sitting there for them. And instead we're getting critical race theory documents that say things like race consciousness is very important and we shouldn't And Colorblindness is wrong. And, you know, just regarding yourself all as one species is actually white supremacy. You know, that's, it, it's just a matter of like, I, I, you know, I do feel that somebody with an intent to destroy what we do did all of this. And when you look at it and you, you, but you take it down, like, you know, I was talking to Liere about this last time I had her on with like, notice that it seems like the current racial activism seems to be geared towards just systematically undoing the civil rights movement like you know as in let's convince people of color to burn down their own communities which will in turn destroy their local economies cause more poverty hurt more people cause inevitably more conflicts with the police then they're bringing back the stigma against interracial marriage They're convincing people of color that segregation will actually protect them and make them more free. It's almost like somebody just decided, you know what? I'm going to undo the civil rights movement by convincing people of color that the best way for them to be free and happy would be to not have anything that Martin Luther King succeeded in getting for people of color. Like it's just like one by one. And, you know, I I think that part of the problem is that we have made our activism so emotional and not rational. We, we've see, we've seeded that ground. and again, it's not just the left. The right has the same problem, and the right's in fighting with itself right now too. Um, but that's why I, I look at it and I think that our responsibility as people who lean to the left is to try to clean up our own world. But like you know, like you said earlier, you know and, and it comes back to what I said, as far as like we don't seem to care about being effective anymore. We don't care about trying to convince people to come over to our side. We don't. And and when you look at it, like, how many people do you think, you know, a given activism thing actually convinced they don't even care? Like, do you think anybody's attitude about trans people in any way improved by having Antifa beat up, you know, soccer moms and street preachers at the Wii Spa? Did that achieve anything? Did you think anybody who already had problems with trans people in any way changed their mind after that incident? You know, I wouldn't think that it would be in any positive way but they just don't care.
0: I think that I want to go back to something you said earlier about, sure. um, well, there's a couple of things I want to go back to. One of them is this, when you're talking about them getting mad at Chris Hedges for being on a stage with somebody that he might disagree with, I always go back to Noam Chomsky debated Michel Foucault and later called Foucault one of the most evil people or the most evil person he'd ever met. Sure. And he still debated him and Chomsky and Buckley used to debate. Um, and that's, that's what we used to do. And uh, I, I don't want to get too, too much, too philosophical on this, but, but I think part of the problem also is this, the whole postmodernism where, They've declared there is no such thing as reality. And once you've declared there is no reality, the only way you can win is by an argument is by shutting the other person up because you can't sure. use facts anymore because facts don't exist or facts are colonialist. Or I mean, I, I actually saw the claim that gravity is a colonialist. Uh, yep. Yeah. Trans- I've seen that stuff too. And once you go that direction again the only way you can you can win an argument is by calling the other person a fascist and then the the other thing i wanted to to mention about that is this whole uh you know the level of purity that's required and you know i don't i don't agree with transgender ideology and there are people who would agree with probably 98% of my work but now I am the devil incarnate because I don't believe that men can become women. And the point I want to get to with that is I don't even agree with 98% of everything I've ever written. You know, it's just, it's just that level of purity is, is extraordinary to me. That's, you know, I was raised a seventh day Adventist. And honestly, at this point, the left is more fundamentalist and dogmatic. And so is anarchism, which just cracks me up. Um, sure they're more fundamentalist and dogmatic than when I was literally a fundamentalist Christian, when I was a child, like there are big schisms in the seventh day Adventist church about whether one should eat meat or not. There's a very strong vegetarian movement, but the people who eat meat weren't, uh, we weren't forced out of the church. My family ate meat and they just, in fact, I remember some potlucks where there would just be two tables and no big deal. I don't, and it's pretty bad when a political movement, which is supposed to be living in a pluralistic society, you know, there's that old line about politics made strange bedfellows and, you know, you make temporary alliances and you share the stage. I mean, heck, I've given, I've given tons of talks over the decades and I was at conferences. I had, I didn't even have any idea who else was there. I didn't care who was there. I just came to do my talk. Right. Right. Okay. I'm done again
1: oh no that's fine um you know i I think that 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 goes back to what i said about it being religious and even cult-like honestly um and that's why there's no room for nuance and then so much energy ends up getting put into ironically fighting people that would otherwise be friends like and that's why i realize, you know so for example i actually like my audience has changed quite a bit my audience used to be probably almost entirely left wing at one point. And now I have a lot of conservatives and and Trump followers who listen to me and they know that I'm not one of them, but they're still listening. And I think I want a lot of their respect because of the way that I treated the Rittenhouse stuff um, and the way that I address things. For example, the only thing I've ever been doxxed for in my entire life and I had my life threatened over was my coverage of trans athletes in sports and what the science actually says. And I'm a sports coach who coaches girls who wrestle. So it's really obvious to a, a wrestling coach what's going on. Um, And the left was so furious with me that they threatened me and my family over something like that. I didn't say anything about trans people shouldn't exist. I didn't say that they're not people. I didn't go into any of that. I just said, here's the science, you know, Um, and that alone was somehow science became hate speech. You know, and one of the things you said earlier about Um, the truth actually it rings out to me there's a guy named ryan chapman who does really good reviews on youtube and he did one about what what orwell really believed and i usually have to tell my conservative friends you know by the way orwell you guys quote 1984 and animal farm all the time but orwell was a socialist you know um he fought i believe it was in the spanish civil war there was like an anarcho-syndicalist like rebellion more or less and the things he was warning about for example, at one point, he says in one of his books, if you if you see a need to remove objective truth, that is a warning sign that some form of authoritarian something is trying to take root in your society. If you need to remove objective truth and then so you can make it anything you want, that's really dangerous. You know, and it reminded me of something that came up. Um, obviously, like my show is called V radio. I, I'm pretty fond of the V for Vendetta film from many years ago. And the Wachowskis made it. And one of the things they were forced to do another movie because they were told that if they didn't make another Matrix film, they were just going to have someone else do it. And for the most part, the new film was ironically kind of making fun of Hollywood for making them make another movie. But there was one very key part where one of the villains says to to Neo, he says, of course, we want everything to be based on emotions. It is much easier to manipulate emotions than it is to manipulate facts. And. That to me was a kind of a mind blowing moment, which didn't surprise me at all that the Wachowskis put out something else that, you know, that because, I mean, the, the matrix has become a major part of our lexicon, the red pill, there's the blue pill. But that one moment of, of course, we want everything to be based on emotions because it's so much easier to manipulate emotions than it is to you know, manipulate facts. You know, And that also comes back to one of the moments during Brett Weinstein's witch hunt at Evergreen State College was at one point he got away from the mob and was just talking to a couple of students. And one of the students realized, uh-oh, he started to make some headway. And at one point he, he screams at Brett and he says, you have to stop demanding that people use logic and reason and white forms of knowledge. I realized this college student was essentially brainwashed to believe that logic and reason, first of all, are apparently something that should only be associated with white people, which is insulting in and of itself. But also that what logic and reason are somehow bad. And this kid was really upset with him for suggesting that they think rationally or logically about what it is that they were witch hunting him for. You know, and that's why I think that people need to recognize and this is something and I'll leave with. And I'll stop for this, which is that I have a friend from the Czech Republic who I do shows with sometimes. And he's like, you know, you guys can't even get basic facts straight, like whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse shot any black people how can you have meaningful conversations about healthcare? care that's actually important if you can't get just basic facts right? And oh, actually, I lied. There's one more. Um, if you go back to the old videos that you can still find on YouTube of Yuri Bezmenov, the KGB defector. One of the things he said was that once a society has been demoralized, real information no longer matters to them. He said, I could take people by force to the concentration camps in the Soviet Union. They still wouldn't believe me. You know, I was like, and that really stuck in my mind, too, because I run into people who are immune to facts all the time. Like they you, you can show them anything you want, you know, and it, it's just never enough. They always have some slant on how it's actually like they'll attack the source, like your source isn't good here or your source isn't good there. And then when you finally back them into the corner about it, all they have left at that point is just vicious personal attack. Um, And they'll they'll throw the what I call the shotgun blast of oppression at you. They'll say, well, you're racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, you know, like just to see what sticks, you know, Um, and that that's their answer. And then the leftists hold. told. And this is one of the things that reminds me of religion. If you go to leftist channels on discord and stuff, they'll tell you never to ever speak to conservatives. And that's when it starts to remind me again of being in church and being told. Don't read Dungeons and Dragons books, you know. Don't talk to anyone who's not a Christian because they're trying to. And again, I'm not saying that all Christians are bad; they're not. But in cults, you are frequently told, "Don't even associate or fraternize with anyone who is not one of us." If in it's because of the fact that they they generally want to kind of hold this view of reality in their minds that they have an emotional attachment to, and if you're you know, if your facts don't fit with that, well, that's hate speech or you know, or you're racist or you're sexist or you're some ism of some kind that means I shouldn't have to listen to you. And the problem is, is that again, if George Orwell, a socialist, was trying to warn us, don't allow this to happen in your movement, I think people should probably listen. You know, like he knew something about it. And um I, I hope that people get it down because at the end of the day. You know, like I, for example, I was pretty well, but uh, Jack Presco, for example, is the founder of the Venus Project, and he wanted the the world to try to look at things more rationally and scientifically. But we can't do that if everything's broken down to all of this, well, rational and science and thinking, you know, logically, well, that's all whiteness or it's all bad. And, it, you know, my emotions, my truth should be the most important thing, how I feel. And everybody's feelings should be important to a certain degree. But if they get to the point where they're so important that they are more important than even just basic facts and reality. That's not a society that has any hope of succeeding at anything. So
0: a, a few things. Thank you for that. A few things. One of them is that
1: uh,
0: when I start to feel, well, I'm going to have a couple contradictory things. One of them is I had, I, I've read a study, but went from 1981 to 2011 about how, um college students had um decreased empathy, empathy by 25% over those years. Mm-hmm. And they did it by asking things like if you had a sandwich and your friend doesn't, and you're having lunch, do you give your friend half the sandwich? And it had decreased 25% by then. And um I've also heard about, I didn't see this part, but I've also heard about one that was same years that said emotional maturity had dropped among college freshmen, that uh, college freshmen in 2011 were about as emotionally mature as high school freshmen in 1981. And so on one hand, I want to be the old person that says, yeah, things are getting worse. But on the other hand, I think about the French reign of terror, or I think about uh, Henry Adams, Uh, more than 100 years ago wrote the the press is the hired agent of a moneyed system set up for no other purpose than to tell lies where the interests are concerned and i think about um, all sorts of times in the past when people have gone crazy and i'm not entirely sure that collective craziness is not our default state and and i think about you know they talk about how I, it cracks me up to read about how politics in the united states are so much worse and so much more divisive than they've ever been but i don't recollect anybody recently being beaten unconscious on the floor of the senate which happened during the slavery debates abolition debates sure uh, i don't remember if charles Shum- sumner was the guy who got beaten or was the guy who beat one of the two and they're the point is that politics has always been nasty and always been very I mean for crying out loud we have Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr shooting each other. And right. So I don't uh and what was it Thomas Jefferson I don't remember who it was there were two of the founding fathers like never spoke to each other again after a certain point because of politics. So I don't I don't know and plus I mean you know, anyway I'll just I'll just leave it there that I I go back and forth as to whether uh, there are – I mean I do think – here's something I want to bring up. So having said all that, you can respond to that you want. Or also I think it's not really possible to talk about all of this demoralization, all of this personal purity, everything else without talking about the fact that real wages have been declining since 1973. Sure, sure. So sure. do you want right. to take any of that in yeah. the direction you want?
1: Well, one of the things that comes to mind, and it's the reason why my – the artwork for my show is the character from *Beef for Vendetta, decapitating both the donkey and the elephant. Um, when you look back at the founding fathers, one of the things that led the reason that there are no political parties in the constitution is because many of the founding fathers had fled England because conflicts between political parties had erupted into vir- you know, riots and assassinations. And it's like, well, that sounds familiar. Um, and George Washington and his, Farewell address pointed out that he was very wary of the party system because he was concerned that people would start to do what was best for their party and not what was best for the people, um, and that was absolutely correct. You know, I, I think that unfortunately the party system in of itself, it, it, it's another example of well now we're going to have two tribes, we're not one tribe anymore. You know, um, and the, then you find congressmen and senators because of it, like there could be something that would be great for everyone. But we can't allow the other party to get a win because that'll affect us in our elections. So we're going to prevent this thing that would be good for everybody um, because we don't want the Republicans to look good or we don't want the Democrats to look good or whatever. And so essentially the whole party system in of itself is more or less like a computer virus ruining our the whole system that they had set up. And this isn't to deify the founding fathers. Yes, they were all plutocrats in their own way. Um, there's no question. Um, and they were slave owners and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, like when you bring up that, for example, those conflicts, it doesn't surprise me at all. That was one of the things that they were hoping to prevent. Um, mm-hmm. And instead now everybody has to. this is the other thing about our party politics is that your politics are packaged like and you're supposed to follow your whole package. So, for example, I would call myself left leaning on a lot of things, but I'm very pro gun rights. Where the hell do I go? Like there really isn't anywhere. You know, um, you know, I have different attitudes about welfare or just different things, you know, Um, and I almost feel like it's that's another example of just weird social engineering, because, you know, I don't think it's a right wing like, you know, this was going to say it's like the association of these two tribes of certain things like so why if I'm pro gun, should I be anti welfare? Those two things don't have anything in common. But that's what you're expected to do. And if you don't, then you really have nowhere to go. You know, and that was um, kind of comes back to what you said earlier about people on the left feeling that they're politically homeless. I don't think that they are. I do think that it's necessary, however. So, for example, um, big time YouTuber a YouTube channel called The Young Turks. Uh, one of their pundits named Anna Kasparian has finally come out and just pointed out various things the, from the woke movement that she's not on board with. And she's not going to be quiet about it anymore. And various mistakes that they had made. You know, on things that they had covered, like the Kyle Rittenhouse incident, or you know, just you know, like different police shootings, or you know, the the position on crime, or whatever. You know, and there are people that are saying, you see, she's an uber right wing conservative. Yet somehow, in their minds, she still supports Bernie Sanders. She still supports Medicare for all. She still supports free college. How is this person on the right? What part of the right is pro Medicare for all? What part of the right, like? but they still will call you that anyway, you know, and and you're associated that way, you know, and that just doesn't make any rational sense. And that's, and that's also why it's alienating and it's, it's not helping. Uh, we're not getting anything done, nothing like a real benefit anyway. Um, and I think again, all of that just feels like going back to occupy. Um, like I did a video because somebody did a, a breakdown, for example, of that, uh, the media during the Occupy Wall Street movement, suddenly, all of a sudden, like he he tracked the trends that statistically all of the the media was only doing articles about white privilege, uh, you know, gender ideology. And like they stopped talking about wealth inequality at all. Um, and instead, they wanted the left entirely focused on all of these things that were going to make them turn on each other. And it's already happening because another one of the weird things that comes up in, in what I call strange bedfellows of the left is the, the woke alliance, so to speak, includes, say, Muslims, feminists, people of color, um, and sometimes these groups don't actually really jive. So, for example, you know, they would want anybody who was not on board with the books that have very graphic sexual images being shown to young children, anybody who opposed that, they would want to be you know, ostracized and canceled. Like, why would you oppose that? You know, that we're trying to expose young children to these LGBTQ concepts so we can protect the gay kids. You know, like they would be very rigid about that. And anybody who's not on board with that is a far right extremist. Well, then in Dearborn, a city here in Michigan, um, the Muslim community showed up and said, no, we don't want that stuff shown to our kids. What's the matter with you? And you could literally watch the school board shift and squirm in their chairs like what am i going to do about this because i can't be islamophobic you know but if i don't go along with this well then i'm transphobic or i'm homophobic like you know um and then you know you take feminism and throw that into the mix you know well the hip-hop culture is one of the most misogynistic cultures you know as far as the kinds of music and the way they talk about women yet strangely silent about that you know um how does that get resolved and then Then the argument becomes, well, feminists versus trans activists, because they can't exist in the same space either, because trans activists just seem to feel like, you know, anybody who identifies as a woman is entitled to the safe space set aside for women. You know, and we talked about the sports, you know, like that's something that irritated me. I'm like the fight for women's equality in sports is not even over, you know, and we're just throwing out, you know. So anyways, it's almost like it's built, it's built like a house of cards designed to destroy itself. Like, I can't understand how anybody would look at that and not realize this was inevitable. You know, like um, I that's actually kind of relevant to current events, for example, like um, I I, I'm usually very hesitant to talk about anything going on in war because there's so much fog of war and we're not going to hear the end of it. But, for example, the very strange relationship between the pro-Palestine movement and the LGBTQ movement, like there's really a group called Queers for Palestine. And I looked it up one day, and again, I'm not asking anybody to take a side on one side of this issue or the other, but if you compare LGBTQ rights in Israel to LGBTQ rights in Palestine, the people that are screaming for Palestine right now who happen to be queer would probably be murdered if they were in Palestine, you know, um, and that doesn't mean that you as a gay person cannot want to see people live, you know, who you don't agree with, obviously. But if you think about it, that same group of queer activists wanted Andrew Yang, who's a leftist who pushes like, you know, for UBI and other things like that, you know, canceled from his run for mayor of New York because he dared to suggest that Israel even has a right to defend themselves. You know, they they want total obedience on that issue. You cannot in any way deviate on it. But, you know, but those same people would not be welcome in Palestine at all. You know, so there's all of these various things that are extremely contradictory. And that's why it almost feels like, again, whoever came up with the idea of gathering all of these things under the banner of the left knew that this was going to be an enormous distraction. Because honestly, I think Occupy Wall Street probably scared the hell out of the super elite. Because um, for one thing, Occupy Wall Street enjoyed a lot of very popular support from both the right and the left. We had Republicans who showed up at our camps and told us, you know, that they may not agree with us about everything, but they totally supported what we were doing. Why don't, you know, but whereas in comparison, Black Lives Matter and the way that that went down, um, it didn't work out like that. You know, in fact, you know, the, you can look at the, uh, the statistics. I think it was like, like widespread support was like 70 percent. And then it went down to about 30 after all the riots and, you know, some of the other just anti-white messages, you know, that just inevitably are going to turn people off, you know. So. It, that's why I said there just seems to be an interest in this chaos and I hope that because the, the funny thing is like the left used to be the group for intellectuals. Like I remember thinking about it. There was a study that said that socialists usually have higher IQs, for example. You know, what happened to that? You know, well now, no, it's not intellectual anymore. You you will just repeat what you're told and if you don't, well then you know, you're repeating the the unapproved talking points, the blasphemy, you know, and you're not to ever, you know, in any way question the dogma. You better go along with it. hundred percent. Who does that win over? And that was just the final thing I was going to say that I realized I didn't say before because my audience had changed a lot was I had a guy who'd been listening to my show from the old days, you know, come into my discord once and he was really upset with me. And he's like, you know, why are you, you know, repeating all of these talking points and, you know, all of your videos seem to be addressed to the right or whatever. And I'm like, let me give you a hint. Because those people listen to me because I'm honest with them, I get texts all the time from Trump supporters, from conservatives, from whatever, who then tell me, you know, because I listen to you, I rethought my thoughts about Medicare for all. Because I listen to you, I revaluated my position on X, Y, or Z. When was the last time a leftist could ever say that? Like, I mean, other than like old school people like you and me, and 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 I realized sadly that's not even their objective. Like I said, they don't even care about being effective anymore. Like if if a leftist looked at my channel, they would make a lot of assumptions about me. <laughs> like they would never believe my positions and they're told not to. But anyway, go ahead. So we're running out of time here in more ways
0: than one. And uh can you a very quickly sum up like in less than a minute and b say how people can learn more about your work and uh listen to your listen to your podcast
1: sure um okay what was the first question the a i'm sorry sum, up. sum <laughs> oh, up sure we have to as the left take back a position of being devoted to trying to find ways to unify people under our cause instead of trying to divide ourselves by perceived in many cases what would really just be superficial differences between ourselves uh, George Carlin did a bit about that. Why we, you know, focus so much on our differences, and that's what the current left is. And we need to try to take back this attitude of like, how do we win back, you know, people? How do we bring people in? How do we get them to join? And I hope that that's something that can be accomplished. But it's it's really only going to happen if we become cognizant of how much we're being manipulated to hate instead of trying instead of to inspire. It, you know, activism used to be about trying to inspire people to change. And I just don't think it's as important anymore, which is unfortunate, because if we continue to down this path, I don't, never mind whether or not we're going to get Medicare for all or are we going to continue to have a society? And as far as how they can check me out, um, the best way probably would be to go to my H.Y. page. It's at H.Y. Uh, dot page slash V. Radio. Um, Let like just radio basically like put V on the front of the word radio um, and you can search for V radio. It's usually V hyphen or V dash radio on Google, um, but that's really the best way to find me. I'm on YouTube rumble. Um, I'm on Spotify. You know, I'm on a lot of different places because I just for the sake of redundancy, you know, so like for example, I even have a bit shoot channel stuff like that. And you can find me on Twitter at VTV one one five.
0: Well, thank you for all that, and thank you for your work in the world, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Neil Kiernan. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.